Margie, I'm really looking forward to the session today as we have our returning special guest host, Pat Brown, take over this session and really talk about the Georgia election update and the resulting policy impact that we can expect to see from that. And it's a good reminder for all of us that politics and policy aren't always the same thing. So with that, Pat, let's talk tax. You're listening to Tap Into Tax, PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists. This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Thanks, Julie and Margie, Chairman Camp and Todd. It's great to have both of you with us. I want to begin today at a high level. So what's your take on the results of the Georgia Senate runoff? And I guess what other current events should our listeners currently be aware of? And maybe, Todd, I'll kick off with you. Thanks, Pat. Clearly, the the outcome of the Georgia Senate races has really changed the trajectory legislatively in this this opening of the Biden administration. Now the Democrats have the so-called lawmaking trifecta. The Democrats are in the White House. They control the House. They control the Senate. That really gives them the latitude to put together legislation, particularly, and I'm sure we'll talk about the reconciliation process, but even with those narrow majorities, it enables them to, where they can come together, where they can come to consensus, really pass legislation particularly in the tax and spending space. So, you know, though that outcome in Georgia really does change things, you know, and, and I think we would have expected that, and we still expect that Congress will start initially really focused less on taxes and more on containing COVID. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that today as well. You know, but there's this other development that, you know, it's the big elephant in the room. We can't ignore it. The president was impeached yesterday. And now what that means is we don't know when the House will send the papers, the so-called impeachment articles to the Senate, but when they do, whenever that happens, the impeachment trial in the Senate becomes the first order of business. And so therefore, if we sort of thought initially the Biden administration would take over and then we'd see legislative activity sort of focused on confirming cabinet officials, focused on COVID uh, stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. If those articles of impeachment have gone to the Senate, then the Senate is going to have to find a way to deal with that. And that, you know, that's not an insurmountable thing. It just means that there's going to be some delay in other activity because the Senate is unlikely to be able to sort of divide and, you know, spend mornings doing legislative business and afternoons doing the trial. It's just going to create a a wrinkle in the start of the Biden administration. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it's going to really kind of derail the Biden approach, which is trying to bring the country together and move forward on his agenda. This will really offset that significantly because it'll all be about Donald Trump and it'll all be about whether he'll be convicted or not and whether or not after the conviction, if in fact they get one, would he then be denied running for office ever again? So there's going to be a lot of issues that will really take over the narrative over the first few weeks. But I would add one thing in in the space of like standing up the Biden administration, the Senate Finance Committee has announced a confirmation hearing for uh, Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen. 
and that's slated for the 19th of January, the day before the inauguration. I expect that to go forward, you know, and I further expect that that probably will be a relatively smooth nomination hearing. Um, so at least, you know, that one box, that procedural box will have been checked so that whenever there's an opportunity, the Treasury Secretary will likely be ready for Senate, broader Senate confirmation. Thanks, Todd. And thanks, Chairman Camp. And maybe Chairman Camp kind of turning to you. So you, at least of the three of us, you're the only one who's carried a voting card on the floor of the U.S. Congress. Maybe talk a little bit, if you could, from your perspective on the process for actually getting legislation enacted with very, very narrow majorities in both the House and the Senate. Maybe give us some insight into that. It really will be the narrowest House majority that Speaker Pelosi has had to deal with in her leadership. Uh, right now, 222 Democrats to 211 Republicans with two seats, one undecided and one open. And what that means is if the majority loses five votes, uh, if it actually becomes a 213 Republican majority, that means that you can't move forward. So what you're going to see is a shift where I think much of the emphasis in the last Congress was between Republicans and, and Democrats. You're going to really see the shift of where is that governing center in the Democratic Party? And there will be tension between moderates and progressives. And it really will mean they'll need every single vote moving forward. And especially in the Senate as well with a 50-50 margin. So that means that every member of Congress is going to be potentially significant when it comes to an issue. And clearly in, in recent years, we've really looked at major legislation being you know, worked on in committee, but often put together at a leadership level. But they really will have to involve the rank and file in ways that have not been done. In the mid-2000s, when I was in Congress at that time, then Speaker Hastert had a very narrow majority. And it does make it much harder. And it really means the speaker's job is really talking to members and trying to bring members along. So it'll be interesting to see Democrats have had larger majorities in the past and, and certainly under Democrat presidents. President Obama began with a much larger majority. And so that will impact. But there are ways that the Senate can move legislation. Uh, and I know we'll get into that later with a simple majority vote with Kamala Harris being the, the deciding vote, if in fact they get every Democrat to agree on, on what to do. And as we talked earlier with regard to this initial time, it will be important to see whether we do begin on a, a sort of a bipartisan approach or will this beginning, the end of the last Congress, the assault on the Capitol and the impeachment, will that make it much harder for members of Congress to come together? Todd, maybe a little bit about reconciliation, the procedures. This is not something that a lot of our listeners may be that familiar with. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not something that anyone is or should be familiar with unless they, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know who other than maybe Chairman Camp and I and others and, and of our ilk sit around reading the House and Senate rules on reconciliation. But reconciliation is a process that grows out of the 1974 Budget Control Act and it was designed as a means to ease the passage, frankly, of, I mean, the design was to ease passage of legislation that would reduce the deficit, balance budgets, et cetera, et cetera. Over time, it's been used to increase deficits through tax reductions or increase spending. So it certainly is not generally used now for its original purpose, although it, it still could be. But the bottom line is, the way it works is both houses have to agree to a budget, a single budget that sets out the spending 
across all the agencies of government, the overall spending of the government. And within that budget that both houses agree to, they will provide so-called reconciliation instructions. Reconciliation instructions will be, as we saw in TCJA, reform the tax code, but in reforming the tax code, increase the deficit by no more than one and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. And so once those budgets are agreed to, those reconciliation instructions go out to the relevant committees, in our case, the Ways and Means Committee in the House, the Finance Committee in the Senate. And then those committees have to work out legislation that satisfies those instructions. And then once they've done that, in the House, none of this, by the way, is especially relevant to House process because the House is a majoritarian institution. They just need 218 votes for anything, including reconciliation bills. The benefit is in the Senate. Once these reconciliation bills are agreed to, then what that means is that they're privileged on the Senate floor and for Senate consideration, and they're not subject to a filibuster. And so that means that Congress can pass legislation in the Senate with just 51 votes, a bare majority. And that's an unusual circumstance legislatively. Generally, you have to get 60 votes to overcome, to end debate, and to pass legislation in the Senate. But for reconciliation measures, you don't have to worry about a filibuster. But there's another trick to this reconciliation process. It's not just as straightforward as that, because in the Senate, in order to enjoy that privilege, you have to very scrupulously comply with the so-called Byrd Rule, named for the late, great Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. And it can trip trip you up and make it much more complicated. So on the one hand, you don't have to get 60 votes. On the other hand, the reconciliation process, the Byrd Rule, etc., can significantly narrow what you're able to do under reconciliation. Well, and Todd, that's an important point that you can't just do anything you want legislatively in reconciliation. And you talked about reconciliation bills, and they will have an opportunity to pass more than one budget because there was no budget last year. And we'll be able to use reconciliation two times in this particular beginning administration. So thanks. And Chairman Camp, sticking with you on this theme of using reconciliation for legislation, do we think they do that right out of the gate or do they do something else first? Or will there be an effort at bipartisanship first? How, how do you see it unfolding in the, in the near term? One of the things that Todd mentioned is the complexity surrounding reconciliation. And so that takes a little bit of time. So I I don't anticipate them using reconciliation right out of the gate. It looks like initially there will be a COVID relief bill, really kind of a two-step process initially regarding the COVID relief measures and infrastructure and spending. But the initial bill looks like it will be one that really focuses on additional funding for vaccines and assistance to families in in the manner of direct checks. And so I think this first effort will be smaller in scope than the second and will be the place where the administration and Senate Democrats see, will there be an opportunity for bipartisanship on this initial sort of shoring up of of COVID relief measures? And that's going to, I think, set the stage for how the Senate proceeds on whether that's uh, stimulus and infrastructure spending or even a later bill that may involve more tax policy, that this initial step is one that I think they're going to try to see, can we get people to work together? And it will be a challenge in this environment. I completely agree with you, Chairman Camp. I think that out of the gate, I think 
President-elect Biden has indicated that he would like to, you know, have a come together moment, a, a bipartisan piece of legislation. We know that there was political salience to those $2,000 checks. Certainly, they played a role in the Georgia elections. We'll see whether there remain, you know, 10 uh, Republican votes for those $2,000 checks. We'll see whether you can get 10 votes for state and local assistance. You know, my, my sense is you, pro- depending on how much state and local aid you're talking about, you probably can find uh, sufficient, you know, Republican votes to get something across the finish line. So I think that this is doable, but you're exactly right. In the current environment, you know, it, it's almost impossible to envision, but it also could serve as, frankly, kind of an escape hatch from the current environment that, okay, we've gone through this sort of bad period. Now we've come together and done something. And that may be the way to sort of move on, if you will, is coming together to pass something. Again, not massive, but meaningful. And that's right. You do have some Republican senators that have said there are four additional direct check payments, whether it's a vaccine testing or a rollout of the vaccine. You may have some bipartisanship in those areas. It will depend. Are Republicans a part of putting the bill together? Are there other measures added to this initial step that are items that may make it more difficult for Republicans to come on board? And we'll just have to see how that develops. Thanks to you both again. And, you know, it's interesting. We've talked about process. We've talked about, obviously, the election results and the process and reconciliation and whether there will be bipartisanship. We've talked about some non-tax provisions, checks to individuals and things like that. This is, of course, tap into tax. So it would be remiss of us not to spend some time talking about substantive tax proposals. And maybe, Chairman Camp, kind of starting with you, when we look at the Biden campaign, we know the Biden campaign had proposed certain tax changes. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe if each of you could give your thoughts on where do we think this is headed? Do we think those campaign proposals become law? Do we think they become modified? How do you see that unfolding? Well, with Democrats winning the two seats in Georgia, it does put the Biden tax plan more in play than it would have been had they not won those two seats and the Republicans held control of the Senate. And you know, campaign plans are often just that, they're campaign plans. And then when you begin to govern, you find that there are going to have to be adjustments. For example, uh, Senator Manchin has said that he would not like to see the corporate rate go above 25%. Uh, that's sort of a ceiling for him. Joe Biden had in the campaign talked about a 28% corporate rate. We haven't really heard where all the other senators and there may be some more moderates or new senators coming in and, and how will they look at sort of one of these touchstone issues of what rate the corporate rate should be. That will clearly be in play and it will really depend on what kind of case that uh, the business community and companies make. What does the economy look like? Is the economy still struggling and will uh, a significant increase in the corporate rate up to 28 make it difficult for companies to invest and hire workers and continue to produce the the goods and services that help grow our economy and provide for families. So this will all have to be discussed and debated. I think that is one that is likely to go up. And it's I I kind of sort of personally feel that there might be a ceiling uh, around 25, given that one senator and they need everybody, as we talked earlier, in order to move something forward. But this will not be a standalone vote just on the corporate rate. 
when they get to it, it will be a fairly significant package with many moving parts. And some of those moving parts could offset some of those issues. He also talked about a 15% minimum tax on book income. I think that's unlikely to happen. It really was, a, I think, a provision put in his plan to help bring the Democrats together in the election. I think it's less, it's also more likely to see some action on the individual side, individual rates, particularly for those incomes at 400,000 and above, and whether that's the threshold or some other threshold. I think you'll you'll probably see some action there. And then on, on the pass-through side, what we call 199 cap A. I think, again, at higher income levels, you'll see that deduction likely be denied. And again, is that the 400,000 threshold? The other proposal on the individual side that was discussed was social security taxes and really having kind of a what we call a donut hole where the, the rate now, there'd be a, a, a period where there would be no social security tax. And then on higher incomes, again, the social security tax would come into play. That is not an item that can be done through reconciliation. Generally, social security has bipartisan support. So I think that's a an idea that is unlikely to happen. Probably one of the more complicated areas will be international tax and the proposal to basically double the guilty tax. Again, not just legislatively, but what might be done in terms of the regulatory side on that. That I think will take um, a lot of discussion and really an understanding among members of both parties, what the TCJA actually did, what were the effects of the TCJA, and what would this mean? And of course, a backdrop on all this is the negotiations going on in the OECD process that we understand they've signaled they'd like to conclude in the first half of this year. So there's a lot of moving parts on the international side, and I, I think there, there could be definitely some action there as some members of Congress and and the Senate have said, we don't think the minimum tax is working the way it should, and we'd like to look at it. So the question is, do they just kind of move the dials or they try to do a rewrite? I think a rewrite is a very challenging thing to do in a short period of time because it's a very complicated area. So, Todd, I'd love to get your thoughts. You know, we know that when President Trump and the Republicans had control of Congress following the 2016 elections, you know, I'll say they came to Washington with the goal of fixing the tax code. I have the sense that President-elect Biden isn't coming to Washington with the same necessarily priority on let's fix the tax code. This picks up on Chairman Camp's point that reform is a time-consuming process. Is there an appetite for that, or are we more looking at this from the Democratic side as something that is a means to an end for other policy goals? I mean, I absolutely think that Democrats look at tax policy as a means to an end. They look at tax policy as, to borrow from the House committee's name, revenues are the way that you realize the means. And so I think that they're going to look to raise revenues to offset the cost of domestic policy priorities. That's how they're going to approach it. But I also think that it shouldn't be lost on folks that I don't think you can say it's not reform because certainly my former boss, Chairman Wyden, looks at in particular the individual side of the tax code and he says, look, there's an unfairness when investment income is taxed so much more lightly than wage income. That's something that Democrats generally agree. There's an element of unfairness to it. We want to restore some level of equity there. And so, you know, the desire to increase capital gains taxation, for example, is a means of closing that gap. And so that's more of a reform initiative to make the tax code more fair. I think Senator Wyden also, and this 
I agree with Chairman Camp that the international aspects of the code are extraordinarily complicated. They're extraordinarily poorly understood generally by members of the House and the Senate on both sides of the aisle. This is not a partisan thing. But for Senator Wyden, in his mind, and this is, you know, there will have to be a lot of discussion about this. He believes that a territorial system sets up an uneven playing field that advantages U.S.-based multinationals or other taxpayers to invest outside the United States as compared to choosing to invest inside the United States. So he's concerned that there's an inequity there that disadvantages U.S. employment, U.S. economic investment, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's going to want to look at that and see, can we make it work better? He's not for crazily high rate. He actually, when I asked yesterday at a press conference, he even said, you know, maybe a 24% rate is the right rate. So not even as, not even 25, as we've heard some Democrats talk about, or certainly not 28. But I, I think that he views that, and I think other Democrats view that as reform. It's not reform maybe in the TCJA sense or the 1986 Act sense, but they view it as we're trying to make the tax code work better for more people. And especially, I think, for sort of middle income, middle class Americans and try to rectify some of those imbalances. So, yes, it is about raising revenue to pay for a health care plan or an energy plan or, or infrastructure or something else. But there is a reform element underlying. Thanks, Todd. That's great perspective. Reform, of course, very much in the eye of the beholder, as your comments point out. So that's that's great. We're, of course, getting close to the end of our time here. I'd love it if each of you could maybe, as you turn towards 2021 and we think about talking to companies about what practically they can be doing, maybe each of you could just quickly give your thoughts on that. Maybe, Todd, I'll start with you and then Chairman Camp just jump in after Todd. So uh, absolutely. Thank you, Pat. Uh, You know, on the whole, I think that modeling uh, these potential changes, the proposals are out there. We will probably over the course of the next couple of months, as the Biden administration puts out its first budget, we'll probably see more flesh on the bone, more detail about what exactly the proposals are, as opposed to the campaign documents, which are a little light on detail. And so I think, you know, modeling and scenario planning. So I think that that's something that is key. I also think that if there's no regrets planning, I think one of the takeaways that I have is that tax rates are not going down. So if companies were planning transactions, were planning the realization of gains, et cetera, et cetera, maybe it makes sense to accelerate those into what is at least currently a lower tax environment than we're likely to see by the end of the year or perhaps next year. And so I think that accelerating income, deferring deductions, et cetera, those sorts of things that companies and taxpayers can do. I think those are things that people should be thinking about. In the near term, I think that to the extent that companies see these provisions and they're concerned about the effects that they're going to have on their bottom lines, on their operations, domestically, globally, et cetera, I think that they need to engage with policymakers and make the case. Policymakers sometimes operate off of headlines. Headlines don't necessarily reflect the facts and data and circumstances that each taxpayer has. But unless a taxpayer goes to them and says, look, I know what you read in the paper, but here's the reality of it, the policymaker may not understand that fully. And so I think making that case, explaining that to the policymakers is critical. The other thing that I would say, and this just goes back to the narrowness of the majority, I think that we should recognize that There's not a need for panic. There's a need for examination and thoughtful 
planning with respect to the proposals that are out there. The proposals are likely to be moderated. They're likely to be less taxpayer unfriendly than the campaign documents have proposed. And so I think don't panic, plan. Think about what the future holds and act accordingly. And I'd agree with all that. The planning is going to be important and modeling. I was on a call with a company this morning and they had modeled various corporate tax rates, various levels of guilty, and they knew exactly the numbers in terms of the effect on, on their bottom line. And it's not, it's going to be modeling and understanding those scenarios, but also developing a scenario or narrative on what that really means in terms of your company's ability to hire workers and continue to invest because the state of the economy is going to continue to be an issue. And, you know, no matter what political stripe a member of Congress or policymaker might be, they generally do listen pretty intently when it's about jobs or investment, particularly in their state or district. So that's going to be important to do and and to understand. I do think this will take a bit of time. This isn't going to happen right away, as as Todd mentioned. And so in terms of enactment, I think we're looking at on, on tax significant tax policy, I think later in the year and definitely in the second half of the year and maybe even late third or fourth quarter. But the debate on these issues is happening now. And so it will be important to engage with uh, policymakers, as Todd mentioned, whether that's directly or through an association or through other means. But that will be important to really, in a granular way, understand what these proposals might mean so that you can have a significant discussion. There will be a need for a lot of education. As, as Todd mentioned, thought and understanding of the TCJA is based on newspaper headlines and isn't necessarily based on the reality of what the bill did and, and may not be relevant to the particular company or sector that is looking at these issues. So these things are going to be important to do. There is some time now to do that. And it will be important also to monitor some of the provisions that are expiring at the end of this year uh, or beginning to phase down, whether that's the net interest limitation or whether that's RE amortization. Those will be in the mix as well. There's also some bipartisan support around things like the earned income tax credit or a more significant refundable child tax credit. And those may be in the mix and pairing those with some business issues might be something that might happen in a larger bill that comes later. So there will be a lot to kind of keep track of and monitor. And there's a number of ways to do that, either directly with policymakers or through trade associations or through other issue-oriented groups of companies and those of like interest that get together on issues. Thanks, Chairman Kemp, and, and thanks, Todd. So I think in summing this up, I heard know your facts, and that's you know modeling and scenario planning, as you both said. It means thinking about actions that you should be taking now, looking at the landscape, and as Todd says, the potential for rates going up potentially at the start of next year, engaging with policymakers you both talked about. And of course, Chairman Camp, I think you said it very well, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs. That's what policymakers are going to be focused on, jobs in their district, jobs in their state. So I think just to wrap things up here, I want to thank you both. A tremendous amount of insight you both were able to bring to this conversation. And to our audience, to help keep track, our PwC policy team will continue bringing you real-time insights on policy on demand. We will have more to share on today's topics as we gain new information on the Biden tax plan, COVID relief packages, and corresponding policy decisions. So thanks again, Chairman Camp and Todd, for your time today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We look forward to speaking with you soon. podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity.
Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.